we go. Well, welcome back to church, everybody. Welcome to in-person worship. It's just so good to be here together, isn't it? In person. It's been uh, very strange having church, just, you know, three or four of us up at the building uh, like this. So to have other people in the room is, is really, really nice. And to see familiar faces again is such a blessing. So, yeah. Thank you for coming along and being part of it. And thank you, obviously, to those tuning in at home as well. We miss you. And we're looking forward to seeing uh, us all back together soon enough. And hopefully, in the not-too-distant, we won't have huge gaps in the uh, hall (laughs) between us. We'll be able to sit closer together without fear. Praise the Lord. Um, We're going to be in Mark. Uh, We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20. Verses 14 through 20 this afternoon. Before we begin, I'm going to start out with a word of prayer. Lord God, as we study your word today, We recognize that we're studying a word which was breathed out by God. And therefore, we're studying a word that is actually able to read us as we read it. And Lord, it is able to decipher the intents of our hearts, uh, our, our needs, our desires, our hopes, and our understanding. And we pray today as we read your word that it would read us. It would expose our hearts. And Lord, that you may uh, bring revelation, you may bring illumination uh, into our hearts about who you are and what you are doing in this earth. Especially, Lord, as we look at this incredible subject of the kingdom of God. So, Lord, we come humbly today. And I pray that as I preach uh, this word, that, that I would not get in the way of what you're doing and what you're saying. Uh, but that, Lord, your word would come forth clearly to all hearing. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So I'm going to read the passages just here. I'm going to read the verses, and then we'll dive in. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Sorry. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, Andrew, and the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. Today, as we turn our attention to these six verses of chapter one, we're looking at two of the biggest moments in human history. Two of the most pivotal moments in all of human history. I don't know if you've realized that as you read these six verses. Sometimes you can pass over what um, the, uh, the gospel writer is saying, can't you, without quite grasping the magnitude of what you're reading. 
We're looking at two of the greatest moments in human history because they are these. Number one, we are looking at the beginning of the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the moment at which Jesus began that incredible three-year ministry which turned the world upside down. And secondly, we're looking at the seed foundation of the church. We're looking at the very earliest beginnings of the church of Jesus Christ, of which you and I are now a part. So it's like looking back into our own spiritual heritage, uh, right to the very beginnings, and looking at what the elemental uh, parts of that, or the elemental constituents of the church are, which is very important stuff to know. We know that Mark has Jesus beginning his earthly ministry after John the Baptist was handed over. That's actually what's written in the Greek. It's from the verb paradidomai, which is to be handed over. You might have it in yours as being arrested. But what's happened is essentially Jesus' ministry begins after John is handed over. Why was he handed over? Well, that's also recorded in the Bible, if you remember. It's because John challenged Herod Antipas, because Herod Antipas, who was Herod the Great's son, had taken his brother's wife in marriage, and John challenged him on this, and therefore, eventually, Herod Antipas had him handed over and arrested, and of course, we know, ultimately, had him beheaded. Mark has this moment recorded as the precursor to Jesus' earthly ministry. Mark also records the beginning of Jesus' ministry as starting in Galilee, as starting in Galilee. Now, we know in John's gospel, there is a record of Jesus being active in ministry in Judea, actually before he comes to Galilee. Um, but John, uh, sorry, Mark doesn't record this for us. Mark chooses to use Galilee as the beginning, and the two uh, accounts are not necessarily um, in contradiction with one another. It's simply that maybe Mark doesn't choose to record anything pre this moment when Mark, uh, sorry, when Jesus arrives in Galilee. I want to do a little bit of geography with you this afternoon because I always find that grounding the scriptures in geography, in actual kind of landmass, helps me to understand uh, what's actually going on. How many of you have actually been to the Holy Land? Has anybody here been there? Yeah, my mom and my mom and dad-in-law have been there. And I've never been, but I, I, I am a, an avid studier of maps. And one of my favorite tools online is Google Earth. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things is to just scroll all over the world and just find some random place and then drop in and have a look. Just me then. Uh, <laughs> now there's maybe one or two that do that. Um, my daughter's caught the bug now as well. That's what she likes to do, Phoebe. Um, so Galilee is an area that's situated around 70 miles to the north of Jerusalem. You see, Israel is actually a really small country. And sometimes when we read in the Bible, we can almost blow it up in our minds to be this huge nation. But it's actually quite geographically quite a small place. Um, but the... the um, the contrast within such a small place in terms of the top topography, the geography, the, the highs and the lows is incredible. You know, like you've got the heights of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is nested up in these mountains in Judea. And then no less than 20, 30 miles away, you've got the city of Jericho, which is right down in this kind of like 
pit in the earth. It's in the Jordan Valley, and it, it's a, an almost a totally different climate there, but you're only 20, 30 miles away. It's a very incredible place. And Galilee is about 70 miles to the north of Jerusalem. And so uh, this is an area that includes the Sea of Galilee and the area immediately around it. You'll also find the Sea of Galilee called um, the Lake of Gennesaret in the Bible or the Sea of Tiberias, all talking about the same place. The hills of Galilee are green. They're lush with life. It's different than the rugged crags that surround Jerusalem. And the Sea of Galilee uh, is a deep blue color. It, it's, it's quite an incredible sight. It almost looks quite northern. It looks kind of european in some ways. And the staple diet of the ancient world, the Greco Roman world, wasn't, they didn't eat chicken, like they didn't have a Nando's that they could check out and, and go to. The staple diet of the ancient world was fish. And so that made Galilee a center of trade right back into the ancient world. Fish from the Sea of Galilee, we know, was traded and prized right the way up into Syria and as far down as into Egypt. It was traded all across the ancient world. And it actually, Galilee is on a trade route. If you know uh, Jerusalem at all, there's an entry point uh, to Jerusalem. There's a port you can either um, sail into, you can go to Joppa in the south, uh, or there's Haifa, as we know it now, which is up to the north. Uh, and the trade route comes down somewhere called the Jezreel Valley, or the, the Plain of Jezreel, and you come um, you come eastwards to the Sea of Galilee and then upwards into Syria. So it was a major trade route in the ancient world. And so Galilee was a very multicultural area in the time of Jesus. We must remember that. There were Jewish settlements, one of which was Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, which was very... Uh, was, was very Jewish. You don't, when you excavate that area, you don't find any non-kosher animal bones and things like that. These were real, uh, devout, orthodox Jewish places uh, in the Galilee region. So we mustn't think that Jesus grew up as a Greek. I have heard things kind of taught that way a little bit, but that wouldn't be the case. However, around these Jewish settlements like Nazareth, there were larger Greek settlements. And so many of the fishermen around the Sea of Galilee at this time, they would have been Greek speakers, they would have been Aramaic speakers, they were multilingual, uh, it was a multicultural area, which I think is really interesting to think about, isn't it? The, the Lord Jesus grew up in this, this kind of cosmopolitan almost area. Yeah, it wasn't the most affluent, but it was filled with people from all over the world. The sights and the sounds and the smells and the languages the Lord would have grown up hearing according to the flesh, is quite interesting, isn't it? And it's not too dissimilar from the world that we inhabit, really, in cities such as this, where we're uh, constantly meeting people from different backgrounds, speaking different languages. It wasn't too dissimilar for the Lord growing up in Galilee at that time. And just as this contrast in landscape between the green hills of Galilee and the rugged crags of Judea, just as there's a contrast in the geography, there was also a contrast in the reputations of the two places. Jerusalem was the blazing pinnacle of Jewish religious culture. That was where you went if you were going to be somebody. Now, religious scholars at the time, based in uh, Jerusalem, they kind of looked down their noses at Galilee. You know, it's a distant backwater 
It's somewhat kind of bastardized by pagan culture. They saw it. And uh, we read that, obviously, in John 7, don't we? Uh, the Jewish priests respond. They say, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, every Jewish eye was focused on Jerusalem as the epicenter of the faith. Galilee was an outpost which looked outwards into the world of the Gentiles. And I find it interesting that it's Galilee. It's this kind of backwater, this outpost that faces towards the Gentile world. It's this place and not Jerusalem where Jesus, the Lord, chooses to begin his earthly ministry. Isn't that interesting? You can see that in his times, many of the religious scholars found it strange. They couldn't get over this one fact that the Lord had almost shunned Jerusalem in the early days. And it wasn't until his final few year, well, his final year, really, when he sojourns down and stays at Jerusalem. I find it interesting because it's almost as though there's a hint of what's about to come in the geography and in the place where Jesus decides to start his ministry. The promises of God, which had, of course, hitherto had only been the preserve of the Jewish nation, were about to become the inheritance of the Gentile world. And Jesus begins his ministry facing outwards to the Gentile nations. I find that very interesting. You often find uh, these kind of parallels in the geography uh, of the gospel. It's very interesting. So we find Mark saying that Jesus enters into Galilee preaching. He enters into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The Lord Jesus came preaching. He came preaching. Later in the same chapter, we find Jesus saying, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. That's verse 38 of chapter 1. Now, I want you to recognize, brothers and sisters, a few things about this. This is No word in Scripture is idle. Amen? I've said this for years. There is not one single line in all of the Bible that is idle because it was all breathed out by the Holy Spirit. We know this from 2 Timothy. All Scripture is theonostos, is God-breathed, and therefore we do ourselves a disservice if we ignore any one part of it. To preach means what? To preach means you must have a message. You cannot preach without a message, can you? You can't preach unless you have something to say. Moreover, to preach any message that you have, you must believe that that message is true and worth preaching. This is all very basic. And at the moment, you're all thinking, of course that's true. But I want you to recognize this. Because Jesus is so often mischaracterized in the world. You see, 
It is only here in his church that we believe that the Lord Jesus really is who he says he is. That he is the son of God. He's not just some sophist, some moral preacher. He's not somebody who came as an antagonist politically. He's the son of God. Jesus didn't come to Galilee and pull a committee together. He didn't draw Jewish leaders and some pagan leaders and some atheist philosophers and want to hear all perspectives about who everybody says God is. And once we've got this kind of synergistic view of who God is, then we'll put together a a thesis about who God is. No, Jesus came preaching. He came preaching. He had a definitive message, the gospel, which he preached. You can't force Jesus into this kind of stoic philosopher model. You can't make him into a mystic who simply came to question things. (coughs) Jesus came preaching. He came preaching a very definite and clear message, the gospel of God. The gospel of God, brothers and sisters. This is why ministers, likewise, like myself, are called to preach. We're called to preach. That's what... Ministers are to do. Not to shrink back into vagary. Not to be unclear, uncertain. Not to think that our work lies in trying to pull together lots of other faith groups and try and find some common themes and all agree on what. No, we come to preach the gospel of God. Our Lord Jesus preached. And so must we, declaring, brothers and sisters, without apology, the gospel, the good news of God. The way this is actually written in the original language uses the genitive case, which in Greek means something belonging to. The gospel of God. The gospel isn't simply from God. The gospel is God's. It's God's gospel. Jesus didn't come to preach his own ideas about God. He didn't sit in some ivory tower thinking up incredible things to say about this divine reality and the purpose of man. No, he came To preach the gospel of his father. He came preaching God's good news. God's revelation. Again, this is the job of a Christian minister today. This is important. This is very important. The Christian minister is to preach God's gospel. Not his own gospel. Not his thoughts about what God's gospel says. But to preach God's gospel. Not to bring his own revelation, but to represent God's revelation. Brothers and sisters, is this not important? Is this not important to you? The gospel that we preach must be God's gospel. We do not have liberty to change it. Because if it's his and it belongs to him, To change it would be to do vandalism to God's own property. Do you see? We are not at liberty to tinker with the gospel. Elements that we find offensive or that we think won't win the lost. 
This happens so often because we have, I think we have good intentions at heart often. We want to win people's hearts and minds. And so we try to fuse our Christianity with pragmatism. And we think, well, what can we do to make this message more palatable to the world? Well, they're certainly not going to like the idea that they're sinners. So perhaps we can dial down what the gospel has to say about sin a little bit. Maybe we can talk less about judgment. Uh, certainly don't message he- m- mention hell. By any means, do not mention hell. And we begin to tinker with the gospel. But what we've forgotten, brothers and sisters, is it wasn't our gospel to tinker with in the first place. Brothers and sisters, it belongs to God. To tinker with it does two things. Number one, it, tell, it, it tells the Lord that we think we're above him. That we know better. Number two is to do vandalism. You don't tinker with somebody else's property. And so as Christian ministers, and as a Christian minister myself, my job, my job is to simply preach what I find written in the word of God. And you, my brothers and sisters, when you listen to preachers, you must have needs ask, what is the gospel I'm being presented with? Does it tally with what I find in my Bible? Or do I see certain elements being taken out, whitewashed or changed? If so, that is a preacher you must stop listening to. Now, just as we have to take care and pay attention to the content of the gospel which Jesus preached, I think we also have to understand the historical context into which he preached this gospel. That's important too. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus, according to the flesh, was of course a Jew. He was a Jew. He wasn't a 21st century man like me. He thought like a Jew. He spoke like a Jew, a man steeped in Jewish culture and tradition. Now, I don't use phrases like, the time is fulfilled. You don't use phrases like, the time has been fulfilled. You don't walk into your family home at dinner time. I I don't, I might now, but I don't walk into the dining room when I've cooked dinner and say, the time is fulfilled. Um, Definitely going to try that now, but I'd get funny looks. And sometimes when we see Jesus saying things like this, it's, it's unfamiliar to us. We, we, we don't really have anywhere to put language like that. So we just often, you know, when we read that, we'll think, oh, that's poetic. Oh, that's powerful. Oh, I like that. That's profound. But, and that's right. It, it, it is profound. It is powerful. But what we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, is what would that have sounded like to first century Jewish ears? That's the question. What would it have sounded like to its original hearers? It would have been loaded. Let me tell you, it would have been loaded with prophetic content. Jesus spoke like a prophet. We often miss that because we're not steeped in the same prophetic culture that the Jews in the first century were. This would have been loaded with prophetic content. Let me tell you why. You know, it's often said, do you know what Jesus' favorite books of the Bible were? Do you know this? They often say, don't they, his favorite book was Isaiah. Loved Isaiah. Uses a lot of language and um, imagery from Isaiah. And also Daniel. Loves the book of Daniel. Quotes from Daniel a lot. 
Um, I'm not meaning to say it was literally his favourite book, because by his spirit he wrote all of it, but he, he uses these two books very often. And he uses prophetic terminology that we find in those two books. For example, you know how Jesus calls himself the Son of Man? I think I've talked about this before, but do you know why that is? You know why he calls himself the Son of Man? You know, historically, a lot of people have thought it was because he wanted to identify as a man. He wanted people to think he was a man. But actually, I want to encourage you, read Daniel chapter 7. Read Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7... We have this vision. Daniel sees a vision. And in that vision, he sees the Ancient of Days. He sees God sat on his throne. And he sees someone like a son of man approaching the Ancient of Days. And to this son of man is given an everlasting kingdom. So Jesus, when he says, I am the son of people, I'm just a man. He's identifying himself with the son of man in Daniel 7. What he's actually saying is, I'm the son of God by saying I'm the son of man. He's saying I'm the one who will inherit the kingdom. It's my kingdom. Isn't that incredible? So this phrase, the time is fulfilled. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, you'll see this time, time and half a time. This is prophetic language. Saying the time has been fulfilled would have instantly had his listeners associating him with the prophetic revelation of Daniel, and in particular Daniel chapter 7. Saying therefore that the time has been fulfilled, therefore what's Jesus saying? He's saying, I am the one who is about to usher in these final days. I am about to bring in the kingdom of God. This is incredible stuff. So to Jewish ears, this wouldn't have just sounded kind of poetic and, and you know, full of, um, of power. This would have been prophetic language. This would have meant something to them. Uh, this would have spoken to them of Daniel and, and, and Isaiah. And also, I think it's important to understand this. The time has been fulfilled. Think about that. The time has been fulfilled. When we read the Bible, if we don't come away from the Bible realizing that God is absolutely in control of time, we've missed something. We've missed something. To the average Jew who had been schooled in the Scriptures, they had a belief which was derived from Scripture that God is absolutely in control of everything which comes to pass. It's what we call the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Now, I think these days this is kind of a taboo subject. People don't often like to talk about it. But the Jew understood that this was true of God. Unless you have a God who is absolutely sovereign over all that occurs, then you can't have prophecy. Do you see? You see this, brothers? Because prophecy is forthtelling, prophemi, before femi, to speak. You're forthtelling. Now, if you're forthtelling something which has yet to come to pass, that assumes that some things in the future are fixed, that God has already preordained them, and that they will occur. Prophecy of necessity 
has to believe in a God who is sovereign, in a God who ordains all that will come to pass, and whose will will not be thwarted. And also that he reveals his will to his people, to his prophets. Amos 3.7 For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And again, in Acts 4, often uh, we, we forget that um, the Lord is minutely in control of everything that happens to the Lord Jesus at Calvary. Acts 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Were the Jews guilty of handing Jesus over? Yes. Will they have to, be, will they have to pay for that sin? Yes. Was it also God's predestined plan, according to Acts 4? Yes. So we see those two realities somehow fusing together in the Bible. And this is just a Jewish understanding. For us, with our Western minds and our preconceived ideas, we, we sometimes get bent out of shape about that fact. But we do very clearly in the Bible see man choosing freely to perform actions. And we also see that God's will is sovereignly over all the actions of humankind. Therefore, prophecy works because God has fixed events. And therefore, according to his decree, he can tell his prophets, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. That's how it works. So Jesus says the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. I think the NIV probably has the, the best rendering of the words there. Um, you might have it in yours, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a decent um, translation, but it's actually literally the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God was what Jesus preached time and time again. We see it, don't we, in his parables, teaching about the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, God has a kingdom. God is a king. He has a kingdom. This is important to know. What's amazing is that Jesus, having already put Daniel and Daniel's prophetic writings in the minds of his hearers, he now mentions this kingdom of God, which again, if you read back into Daniel 7, is a theme. So already their minds are taken back to Daniel 7. Isn't this amazing? Because when we read Mark... Our minds aren't necessarily in Daniel, are they? When he says these words, but this is what they would have thought. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, we have to remember this is the start of his ministry. They don't have the rest of his parables about the kingdom yet. They don't have Paul's writings about the kingdom yet. What they have to reference what he's saying is the Old Testament. So let's take a look at some of what Daniel says about this kingdom. Daniel 2.44 And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Daniel 4 verse 3 
How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Daniel 7 verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There's that name again. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then finally Daniel seven twenty seven. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, that's us, of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Jesus is talking here about that kingdom, about the inbreaking at the end of human history of the greatest kingdom of all, the kingdom of of God. This is the kingdom of God. It's now. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, has come near. Has come near. Interestingly, that Greek verb, which is enikken, I think, that verb is only used to talk about spatial distance in the New Testament. It's not really used to talk about temporal distance. So what he wasn't saying was the kingdom of God is at hand sometime in the future. What he's saying is literally the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. I am the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the beginning of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, necess- is necessarily wherever the reign of God is. That's where the kingdom of God is. Jesus said, didn't he? He said, the kingdom is within. He also said to Pontius Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is not like an earthly government. It is not an army. It is not a political party. The kingdom of God is spiritual. It will be ultimately realized, of course, in the future when the Lord returns. But this is the beauty of this message of the kingdom of God. It's the now and the not yet. It's the now and the not yet. There is a kingdom of God on earth right now. Right now, where are we meeting in this place? The kingdom of God is. It's wherever the rule of God is. It's wherever his will is being done. It's wherever he brings righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is where we're seeing the kingdom of God touch earth. It's an expanding kingdom. The kingdom of God is growing in the earth. We might not be able to perceive it always can we? And in dark times like this, sometimes it feels difficult to see how it possibly could be growing. But we know from Isaiah 9, you read about it, you know, his wonderful counselor, his, his kingdom, and the government will, be, government will be upon his shoulders. It'll be an ever-increasing government, growing. You know, there's never been a point in history when there have been more Christians on earth. Did you know that? There are more people coming to Christ now that at any other point in human history. 
Isn't that wonderful? The gospel is going to the nations, brothers and sisters. There are fewer and fewer nations that have not heard the gospel now than ever. You know, there was that story, wasn't there, of that Christian ministry just recently who traveled out on his own about two years ago to the North Sentinel Island and was shot by arrows and killed. But this, you know, we're down to the last few nations, and by nations I mean people groups, who have not heard the gospel and have not received the gospel now. We're in the last days, brothers and sisters. Truly in the last days. The gospel is going forth. The kingdom is expanding. And soon we will see its fulfillment at the Lord's return. And in that day, when the kingdom of God is fully realized, we know what? We know there will be no more sadness. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. He will wipe every tear away. There'll be no more depression, no more lockdowns, no more pain, no more sickness, no more virus. At the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus will rule. And every nation, this nation, Germany, France, the United States, every nation will come into submission and subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will rule. He will reign in perfection. He will establish his kingdom ultimately and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. But now, now, even now we're seeing the kingdom of God advance. We see it impact the city, don't we? We can see the kingdom of God impact even unbelievers. This is a reality. In the Welsh revival, I think it was around about 100,000 people turned to Christ in the space of a year and a half. 1904 to 1905, down in South Wales. And such was the impact of this revival that the police had nothing to do. In the latter stages of this revival, there was nobody to arrest. There were no drunkards pouring out of the pubs onto the streets. There was no violent crime. There was no domestic violence. The police were sat twiddling their thumbs. Work actually slowed in the mines, they say. Because the mules that used to pull along the coals in the uh, carts, they were used to being sworn at. That was their command to get a move on. The miners stopped swearing. The mules stopped running as fast. The coal production slowed. <laughs> but the kingdom of God had a dramatic effect on a region. I want to say to you today that that is possible for our city. It is possible right now in these days that the kingdom of God could impact the city of Wolverhampton and the surrounding area in a very real, measurable way. Amen? The kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus is with us. We, brothers and sisters, we, his church, are an outpost of heaven on earth. We're an outpost of heaven on earth. And it's through his church that God builds the kingdom. That is his means. That is his method. He doesn't build this kingdom through armies. As we saw back in the 1600s with Oliver Cromwell, who thought he could do that. 
We do not see the kingdom advance through military means. We do not see the kingdom advance through any particular political party, although a political party may be founded on Christian principles. It is not the method by which God advances his kingdom, brothers and sisters. We also do not see the kingdom advance through social action alone. We can feed as many poor people. We can stop as many people falling into slavery as we want, but ultimately... It is through the church and the proclamation of the gospel alone that brings and builds the kingdom. I don't know about you, but I want to see more of the kingdom of God in this place. I don't want to, I don't want to live experiencing what I've experienced so far. I don't want to live and see many thousands in my city go to hell. I want to see the kingdom of God break out. Do you? I want to see the kingdom of God in Codsall. I want to see revival in the church. I want to see God's kingdom expand and grow in my days. How does this happen, brothers and sisters, to do? Especially when it's concerning their own conduct. And I think sometimes there's, there's some good in that. You know, I, I'm often too aware of my own failings and, and then I know it wouldn't be proper uh, for me to tell somebody about their failings. And, and that, that is right. There's a, a truth there. But we can't take that truth and use that truth to stop us and prevent us from preaching this gospel of repentance. Because... We have to remember again, it's not our gospel. It's God's gospel. It's his proclamation. And I'm just a messenger. You see, to command somebody to repent as Jesus did and as John the Baptist did before him is to presuppose something about them. It's to tell them that they're a sinner. It's to tell them they have something to repent of. Of course, we could say, well, of course, Jesus had the right to say that. He was free of sin. He had a clean slate. But we remind ourselves again, it's not our gospel. We don't have the right to not preach it because it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's God's gospel. You are just a messenger. You're just a messenger. It's like this word evangelism comes from euangelion, the Greek, which you would call somebody that word, if they were a messenger. And often it's said, isn't it, that uh, an evangelist in, in the Greek world and the Greco-Roman world could be somebody who takes the, um, the news of victory on the battlefield and spreads it far and wide. He's a runner and he takes the message of victory and he takes it to the nearest city and he tells them the news. That's our job. We are taking a report, God's report, God's good news and we're reporting it to the world. We're messengers. That's our job. We don't have to be morally perfect to preach the gospel. We're simply his messengers. But God's good news must come. Must come with truth as well as grace. You see, the gospel isn't just the message of the Father's love. It's also a pronouncement of judgment upon the sinfulness of mankind. 
without our understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness, we see no need of grace. I see no need for Jesus to die. And this is where the gospel so often falls apart, isn't it, brothers and sisters? I know I'm going on, but please keep with me. I'm nearly done. (laughs) This is where it so often falls apart. Because Christians don't want to talk about the stuff over here. We don't want to talk about sin and the fact that God is holy and he will judge. But we do want to talk about love. He loves you. He's forgiven you. Sometimes I've heard it said, Jesus loves you so much he died for you. And I would hear that said as a young man and I would think, why would he do that? My mum loves me, but she didn't need to die for me. That would be weird, wouldn't it? You know, Dean, I just love you so much. I'm about to go nail myself to a cross for you. He'd be like, you psycho, what are you doing? When we take this stuff away, this stuff doesn't make sense anymore. The message of the cross only makes sense with sin and depravity and sickness. Only then do we recognize that we needed Jesus to die for us. You needed the Lord to go to the cross for your sins. Because your sins deserve nothing but death and judgment and wrath from God. So it's then that we see his love, that he provided a sacrifice for your sins, a necessary sacrifice. God can't wink at sin. This is the difference in the holiness between our God and the God of Islam, where Allah will just make a pronouncement of forgiveness. He will wink at sin. Yahweh is not like that. Yahweh is perfect. He's holy. He will not wink at sin. Blood is required for sin. Sin is serious. And when we recognize the depth of our own sin, we recognize the need that we have of the cross. Do you recognize your need for the cross today? Do you recognize how lost you would be without Christ? Do you see in the cross... The love of God now. Do you see how in your need of a sacrifice he sent his own son for you? That's when I start to see the love of God. I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. God didn't send Jesus for me because I was worth it. He sent Jesus for me because of his love. His love for me. Isn't that wonderful? Repent and believe. In fact, in the Greek, it's more like repent and keep on repenting and believe and keep on believing. It's in the present tense. Brothers and sisters, have you repented? Have you repented? Have you come to a place of sorrow about your sin and your knowledge of needing Jesus daily? Do you repent regularly? You know, often, the more we walk with the Lord, the more we're aware of our sin. I don't know about you, but the more the Holy Spirit is with me, the more I realize that I'm full of sin. I can't seem to get rid of it. And then I realize His grace more because His grace outruns my sin. The more I sin, the more grace there is. It's not to say, of course, as Paul argued, that because His grace outruns my sin, that I go and sin. No. How dare I sin against the one who loves me? But. The more you walk with the Lord, brothers and sisters, the more you repent because of the more of your sin you see. 
And the more you repent, the more you believe. Because the kind of repentance the Holy Spirit works in the heart of a believer isn't the kind of repentance that says, I'll try better next time. It's the kind of repentance that says, I've come to the end of myself. I am done. I can't do this. I need you, Jesus. That's the kind of belief that gets worked out through this godly repentance. J.C. Ryle said this, Repentance and faith were the foundation stones of Christ's ministry. Repentance and faith faith must always be the main subjects of every faithful minister's instruction. I want to say, wherever you are, whoever you are, let this message be heard today. Repent and believe. Repent and believe in the Lord. Is he calling you today? I know many of you here in this room already know the Lord. I know your stories. I know your testimonies. But perhaps somebody's watching this today and you don't yet know the Lord. I want you to be encouraged by these final few verses here. It's this, that the Lord Jesus calls his followers. The Lord Jesus called these four fishermen, didn't he? What we're looking at right here is the seed of the church. Is Jesus calling you today? Is he calling you to stop what you're doing? To drop what you've got in your hands, whatever it might be, and run to him? This is an incredible thing because we know from tradition that no other rabbi did it like this. There's no rabbinical tradition of a rabbi just walking up and saying, hey, you come after me. There's nothing like that. In fact, it was the disciples that sought out the rabbi. They thought, I like that guy. I'm going to go follow him. Jesus, on the other hand, he went out and he said, you, I want you. Come after me. And guess what? They did. They did. Is Jesus calling you today? Is Jesus calling you? We see in Romans 8, 29 and 30 that those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. This Christian journey, brothers and sisters, is one that begins not with you but with the Lord. It's one that begins with his call, not your response. Is the Lord Jesus calling you today to stop what you're doing, to step out of your sin and to come after him? He wants to make you today a fisher of men. To finish with, I want to encourage you about a story of perhaps one of the greatest fishers of men in church history. This wasn't, I'm not going to talk to you about one of the disciples. In fact, I'm going to talk to you about a woman uh, who perhaps many of you will not have heard of. Her name was Monica. Monica. She was a North African Christian and she was the mother of a man called Augustine who went on to become one of the church's greatest theologians. We know from Augustine's writings that his mother, Monica, never stopped praying for him. 
Every time she got a chance, she told him about Jesus. She chided him for his sins. She warned him about judgment. She never missed an opportunity to witness to her son, even when he seemed to be in the grip of vice and immorality. Augustine, by his own confession, was one of the most immoral men of his time. But his mother, Monica, never gave up, even though right the way through his 20s, he got deeper and deeper into sin. He took himself concubines. He had a son who he sent away. He lived a life of hedonism. But after all that time of witnessing, of bashing a head seemingly against a brick wall and seeing no fruit, eventually, after years and years and years and years, Monica saw her son Augustine turn to Jesus. Do you have people in your life that it just seems like you're banging your head against a brick wall with? You talk to them about Jesus, you pray for them and you see nothing. Take heart. Jesus said to these disciples, I will make you to become fishers of men. We become fishers of men. It takes time. It takes effort. Sometimes it takes tears in prayer. But I want to encourage you, any Christian, the Lord will make to become a fisher of men. I'll finish with this in prayer. Mike, if you could come up and we'll finish in our final song. Spurgeon said this, quote, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Father, we pray today that you would work this same passion in us to win souls to be fishers of men and women. Lord, we pray that through this small fellowship of believers, we would see your kingdom grow in 2021. And God, I pray that by the end of this year, we are going to need a building with a baptistry in order to baptize many, many new converts. Lord Jesus, I pray if there's anybody listening to this message today who you were calling, Lord, we pray that they would repent, that they would drop their sins just as these fishermen drop their nets and run to you and waste no time in doing that. Lord, we pray that everyone listening to this might have the courage also to believe, to set their faith upon you and you alone for the forgiveness of sins. We pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm going to welcome up the worship team. If you'd like to stand with us, if you're able, and we're going to finish in praise and worship.